God, we are thankful for another day, another Sunday to be together. And Lord, whether in this room or whether someone watching online at home or a hotel or wherever they might be, God, we pray that you would meet with us. We pray that this would just not be another religious exercise to get information, but that you would bring us your comfort, that you would teach us that our joy is in Jesus and we can have that joy any day. God, we thank you for how kind and gracious and faithful you are. We pray that you would convict where we need conviction, that you'd bring encouragement, that you would teach and instruct. We ask for all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week, my wife and I watched the, the movie or the play Hamilton again. Now, because it is so long, we split it up over several um, days. And there are a lot of things I love about this, um, but one thing particular that stood out to me this time was how much they talked about enough. And as I mentioned, that is our sermon series title, and so my ears were tuned to that. Well, there's a key song in Act 1 called That Would Be Enough. And in it, Hamilton's wife, Eliza, is telling them that he doesn't have to keep trying to climb in influence and power and prestige and wealth. But Hamilton is restless and driven, driven to prove himself, to become someone, to go places. If he can make it to the top, if he can provide all these things for his family, if he can write his own story, then that would be enough. But his wife urges him, we don't need those things. You don't need to prove yourself to anyone. You don't need money or a legacy. She says, if you could just be present as my husband or as our children's father, that would be enough. Well, Hamilton doesn't listen. He's driven for more, for something out there that he thinks can be enough. He thinks his family will always be here. And even though he does love them, Even though he cares about them, he thinks, well, one day, once I check all the boxes, once I attain all the things I want, then I'll go back to my family. Then I'll prioritize them. What we see is that um, when he puts things to the side, when he actually does come back, those things are either gone or they're a mess. Toward the end of Act 2, Hamilton has sort of bankrupted his life. He lost his firstborn son. He brings shame and guilt on his family, and he stumbles in his political pursuits. And so we see those earlier lyrics brought back in this song, It's Quiet Uptown. But now it's too late. The things he had pursued had failed him and left him broken. And now the things he wants to come back to are gone. And what we see in this song is that he now suffers pain and regret. Hamilton now sings sadly to his wife, Eliza, wishing he could exchange his life for his son's, wishing he could bring a smile back to her face. He says if he could change everything, if he could give up all of his pursuits and his accomplishments just to accomplish those things, that would be enough. Well, there's a lot going on in this story, but it's a reminder that we must be careful not to push to the side our priorities for the things that are urgent. We can't neglect our priorities, planning to come back to them eventually. One reason is because it's often too late. When we decide to do so, we've built a life around certain habits and patterns and passions. And so it's hard to go and just change your life later on. And second, what we see clearly in this show is that none of us are promised tomorrow or another 10 years. 
And so we can't assume that we will ever get back around to these things or have the chance again. And so if discontentment, if it drives us under this dream, the illusion, the idol, that something out there can be enough, we'll never experience the peace and the rest and the contentment we seek. We see this truth throughout the Bible, and this sermon series has aimed to convince us that there is nothing on earth that can be enough, that only life with God can be enough. And yet, a meaningful walk with God, an intentional pursuit of God, it's one of those things that we tend to put on the back burner in life. We value it, we believe in God, we think these things are important, but we don't prioritize it. We pursue other things thinking, eventually I'll prioritize time in the word or prayer. Or eventually my Christian walk will be what it should be. We wait until we have enough from all the other things. Meanwhile, the one person who can be enough is calling us to himself. Well, today we'll talk about three practical ways to pursue the enoughness of Christ. Contentment is about rest, satisfaction, the end of our striving, and the presence of a deep, abiding joy. And there are a thousand things in our world that will offer to give that to us, but none of them can, can except God. And it's through some of these practices or disciplines, things that are so easy to push to the side in our life, that we actually know and experience God. God can give us contentment, but it isn't automatic. And so in Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7, we'll look at, we'll see three ways to cultivate contentment by actively pursuing a walk with God. Not just believing in him, but knowing him, seeking to have a relationship with him. We're told to do these three things. First, rejoice in the Lord always. Second, pray to him about anything and everything. And third, give thanks to him in all circumstances. The first thing we'll look at is rejoice in the Lord from chapter 4, verse 4. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Now, rejoice is one of those great Bible words that you probably don't hear in everyday life unless you're listening to Christmas carols. Rejoice is clearly related to the word joy. And even in this short letter, a letter written to a suffering church we see the words rejoice and joy 16 times. And so to rejoice, it really means to celebrate or to take comfort in something or to take joy in something. And it's usually reserved for big things in life. As much as I like Chick-fil-A, it would be weird to come home and say, okay, I got Chick-fil-A, let's rejoice. Or there's a sale at Target, let's all rejoice. Now, those might be nice things, but they don't really fit with the weight and the depth of the word rejoice. Rejoicing is more of what you do with a birth or a wedding or when you close on a home or with an answer to prayer or seeing God change someone's life. You do see rejoicing in a lot of Christmas movies. So to help you picture this rejoicing, I'm going to mention four examples from holiday movies. These are all short. Now, the place you have to start is with, hands down, the greatest Christmas movie of all time. It's A Wonderful Life. Don't argue about it. At the end of the movie, once George Bailey comes back to life, as he runs through and see Bed sees Bedford Falls again, he's jubilant. 
And then as he hugs his wife and kids, he rejoices. And then as his friends and neighbors, as they come, as they pay this debt he could never pay, he rejoices again. Or in a Christmas story, when Ralphie finally gets that Red Ryder BB gun, he rejoices. It's short-lived, but he rejoices. Or in that Christmas classic, Elf, you might remember the scene where Buddy the Elf is in the store Gimbals for the first time. And the manager tells him that tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa is going to be there. Now, for Buddy the Elf, that's the greatest news ever. And so he rejoices and he dances because Santa's coming. And then finally, in one of the 70 remakes of A Christmas Carol, when Scrooge wakes up and he finally has a second chance in life, when he can do things different, he rejoices. He has a jubilant face again. And then when he makes Bob Cratchit his partner, his family rejoices. So those are just some common examples that give us a picture of what rejoicing looks like. Rejoicing is taking joy in something because it's good news or it was something that we desired. Rejoicing is a verb. It's an action. It can be an outward, a celebratory thing, like the examples I gave, or it can even be more inward like an inner rest and peace, or even the way a meaningful truth echoes in our heart in the midst of pain. And so despite how we might feel, we can choose to rejoice in something. We don't have to wait for the emotion or the affection of joy to strike us. We can actually go out and pursue it. We can point our joy and our hope in the right direction. And in fact, we do this all the time. The problem is we point our hope and our joy in the wrong direction, or we look in the wrong places. We try to find joy in having more, in having what others have, in that relationship or that person, in having the ideal family, in feeling respected or desired, or a thousand other things that promise to give you the joy and the satisfaction and the contentment that you're looking for. But when we put the weight of our desires and our hope in those things, when we celebrate them, when we take joy in those things, they can only disappoint. James Smith says that humans, all of us, were those strange creatures who can never be fully satisfied by anything created, though that never stops us from trying. Or to move from Hamilton to another musical on Disney+, Plus, The Greatest Showman, In the song, Never Enough, Jenny Lynn sings about fame, dreams, wealth, or anything else and says they can never be enough. She sings, and I won't sing it, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough for me. And the problem is that everything in this world is finite. Even the best things lose their luster. They disappoint or they fade away. And so no thing, no experience, no person, no accomplishment can ever be enough. But Paul tells us to rejoice, to take joy in the one thing that can be enough. It says rejoice in the Lord. The answer isn't diminishing your desires, but directing them in the right way. 
And so the reason that we as Christians can rejoice is because we're told we rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say just rejoice or rejoice in circumstances. He says rejoice in the Lord. And that's why Paul could tell this sorrowful, suffering church to rejoice over and over again. And the reason we as Christians can rejoice despite all that 2020 has been is because our joy is in Jesus. That's why we can rejoice always. Melissa Kruger writes, The bedrock of our rejoicing isn't the goodness of our day, but the goodness of our God. That's why Paul says we can be both sorrowful and yet rejoicing. We can have our world rocked and still rejoice in Jesus. And you do notice this language in many of the Christmas hymns. Many of these songs have a very somber tone as they talk about the pain and the ache we feel in the fallen world. They reference our darkness, our loneliness, and the brokenness of the world that Jesus enters into. And that's why Christmas is good news. Because God came down, we can sing about the hope that thrills a weary world or a new and glorious morning that has dawned. Consider the, consider the song we opened with today, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. The rejoicing there is in the coming of the Son of God. The song references our lonely exile. It's a reminder that apart from God, in our sin, what we have is estrangement, judgment, bondage, and death. That apart from Jesus, we would be lost in our sin. That we would be far from God now and forever. We would have no hope in our lonely exile, no joy in our aching heart, and no answer to sin and death. And to make it worse, we are prisoners, prisoners who cannot escape or get themselves out. And so the song says what we need is a Savior, a Savior who can come and who can rescue us himself. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He comes to bring light to the darkness. He comes to bring hope to the hopeless. He comes to bring peace to the weary. And he comes to take lonely exiles back to their home with the Father. And so the virgin birth, that's only the beginning of the story. We then have a perfectly righteous life, a sacrificial death for our sins, a victorious resurrection over the grave, and then an ascension to the throne in heaven where Jesus reigns today. And because of this finished work, we can receive forgiveness through Jesus and a right standing in Jesus. And all of this, all of this is by God's free grace. The gift that costs God everything in the death of his son, it costs us nothing. The thing we absolutely needed most, the thing we could never pay for ourselves, is a free gift that God gives us. And that's why Christians, those who have received this gift by faith, that's why we can rejoice anywhere and always. It's why we rejoice in songs about the coming of Jesus. And that's the kind of good news that leads to rejoicing when things are hard. 
that Christ came and Christ is with me still. That the baby in a manger became a savior on a cross and now is a king on a throne and so he reigns. And so whatever it is that we are going through today, if I have Christ, I have reasons to rejoice. That's why when we sing all I have is Christ, we're not saying I have nothing. We're saying I have everything. I don't know how many of you saw the Colts coach Frank Reich last Sunday in the post-game press conference, but I think, of, I think he gave us a great example of rejoicing. One of our members, Joel Erickson, he actually wrote about this for the Indy Star. As many of you know, Coach Reich is a strong Christian. And last Sunday, he opened his press conference by talking about how Jesus, not an important Colts win, gave him the biggest joy in the day. He talked about how hard of a year this has been for everyone. And yet, that morning when he woke up, when he read Revelation 5, a chapter about John's vision of Jesus, the slain lamb, seated on the throne, receiving all glory and worship, he said, quote, he was literally in my room weeping with joy. He goes on to say that despite all this year has thrown at everyone, when he remembers that Jesus Christ has purchased us by his blood and that he now reigns in glory, it filled him with confidence in God, strength, hope, purpose, and indescribable joy. What a picture of how we can rejoice in the Lord anywhere and always. We rejoice. We rejoice because Jesus is the lamb who was slain for our sins, and Jesus is the lion who fights our sin and our enemies. We rejoice that the heart of Jesus beats with compassion and gentleness to us in our suffering and sorrow. We rejoice that Jesus is a conquering king who has won the ultimate battle against death and our adversary, the devil. We rejoice that Jesus, the true light, just as he entered the darkness of the world at our birth, that Jesus is the light who enters the darkness of our darkest days today. We rejoice that what defines us isn't our struggles from this year, our failures, or our disappointments. What defines you is who you are in the person of Jesus Christ. And we rejoice that before long, Jesus promises that he will come back and he will make all things right. He will wipe away every tear. He will remove all the sin and the brokenness, the corruption and the pain. It says he will fix the world. He will raise us up as imperishable people and he will dwell with us in Eden 2.0 forever. And so our rejoicing, it's not in the Christmas season it's in what Jesus has to offer us. Our rejoicing isn't in changing circumstances. It's in an unchanging Christ. And so we're told that we can rejoice in the Lord always. Well, we not only fight for contentment by rejoicing in the Lord, but we're told that we can pray to God about everything. Follow along in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 tells us, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ 
Jesus. So we're told that prayer with thanksgiving is how we experience the peace of God or contentment in God. But we often wait until our life improves or until we feel a measure of peace before we go to the Lord. But here we're told the order is the opposite, that first we pray and we give thanks and then the peace of God comes to us. We can lay anything at God's feet. This in itself is a cause of rejoicing, that God invites us to cast our cares, our prayers, and our desires upon him. That doesn't mean he's a genie that gives us every wish we want, but it means we can trust him and we can ask him. Right now, my dad is in a hospital on the south side of Indianapolis. Some of you know this, but a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of donating some of my blood and cells. Essentially, what they did is they gave me a bunch of injections, which I didn't love, to really cause my body to overproduce white cells, white cells and stem cells. And then they took all of them out. They call it an extraction, which I kind of like. It sounds like a Mark Wahlberg action movie, The Extraction. So it sounds cool. I like that. But what they did is they took all of these out of my body, and then they use them, they give them to my dad, and it replaces his immune system, the one that was wiped out by chemo. Now, I can pray to God, I can ask God that he would heal my dad, and that he would cause this blood transfusion to work. God invites me to pray about these kinds of things, but I'm not guaranteed to get what I ask for. But I can learn to ask and then trust a trustworthy God. We rest not because we have the answer we want, but because we rest in God. I think that's how prayer leads to contentment. And despite what all the prosperity gospel might teach us, prayer and obedience, they're not magic wands we wave to get whatever we want from God. But God does invite us to pray to him. It says he delights to hear our prayer and to answer us. He sometimes has different plans for us, always good, and so we might not get exactly what we want or when we wanted it. My daughter, she's three, she sometimes asks for a snack, and I say no, most of the time I say yes, but I sometimes say no because I know a dinner is in store for her. And so God knows what we need and when we need it. 1 Peter 5, 7, it tells us then that what prayer is, Prayer is casting our cares upon God, and it says, because he cares for us. And so prayer is taking the burdens that are too big for our shoulders, and it's putting it on the big, broad shoulders of a God who can handle it. And so maybe in your week, you don't feel like you can rejoice, but you can always pray. You can say to God something maybe like this, Lord, it's so hard in this moment not to feel jealous not to give in to that comparison trap. Help me to trust that you are taking care of me. Or, God, it's hard to be okay with this situation. I don't know how we're going to make it. I want you to change it, but would you please give me rest and contentment in you? Would you help calm my heart? Help me trust you. Or maybe it's a prayer that says, God, I'm tired of being alone. Tired of waiting on a spouse. Tired of waiting on a child, tired of waiting for friends. God, would you draw near to me and give me your comfort? Would you be enough? You might not be able to rejoice all the time, but you can pray all the time. You might not be able to change your circumstances, but you can talk to the God who can. 
The classic hymn says this, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and our griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. A quick review, we were told that we can rejoice in the Lord always. We can pray to God about everything. And then third, we see that we can give thanks to God in all things. Now, we tend to think of thanksgiving only in terms of the goodies in life, all the blessings and the gifts that we want. But biblical thanksgiving, it goes way beyond blessings. I want to quickly point out the role of thanksgiving in this particular chapter where it's talking about how thanksgiving relates to prayer and this desire for contentment. The kind of thanksgiving going on here is a thanksgiving connected to prayers against our anxieties, the prayers related to our cares. It says that we give thanks to God from a posture of trust, whether we have the things we want or not. Paul says the way to have peace with God, the way to rest in Christ, The way to get this experience of contentment we're talking about is by praying with thanksgiving. And this kind of thanksgiving, it's not a gift-centered gratitude all about what we have, but it's a gritty, God-centered gratitude that rests in the one who knows what we need. And so as we pray, as we hand things over to the Lord, at the same time, we give thanks for who he is and what he has done for us. This is what David does throughout the Psalms time and time again. He chooses thanksgiving when he's in undesirable situations or when he's focused on the problems of life. Thanksgiving is how he redirects his mind and his heart away from the problems and the uncertainties and onto the certainties of who God is. And so as he gives thanks, his view of God actually grows and increases and his view of his problems shrink. The problems don't go away, but they start to pale in comparison to the God that he's giving thanks to. And so also for us, as we give thanks to God in all things, thanksgiving then leads to trust, leads to contentment, and leads to confidence in God. Matt Chandler says that thanksgiving is worry's kryptonite, and I think you can apply that to discontentment too, that thanksgiving is discontentment's kryptonite. And the reason is because when we choose gratitude, when we choose to give thanks, we actually then choke out grumbling. And I think part of our struggle with discontentment is because we all have this list of grievances in our mind. These are the things we feel are unfair, that cause stress, we're unhappy about, or we just wish were different. And so when little things happen throughout the day that resurface the problem or they bring attention to it, what we do is we start to think about it. And then more often than not, we start to go down this rabbit hole of grumbling. And that is a recipe for discontentment. As we think about all the problems, all the grievances, all the things we don't like. Well, one way we fight this is to create a different list. A list of reasons to praise and to bless God. We give thanks rather than grumbling. We thank him that he not only listens, but he's powerful enough to do something about it. We give thanks that what is too big for us is never too big for God. We thank him that he is wiser than us, and he knows exactly what we need. We thank God that he is with us, and he 
loves us. That even though the trial might continue, he promises to be with us, to provide for us, to care for us, and to give us the grace that we need. He says, if you walk through the water, if you go through the fire, I will be with you and I will carry you through it. We give thanks because in Jesus Christ, there is no more condemnation. All we have left is forgiveness, grace, and the love of God. We give thanks that that means we never have to earn God's favor, that Jesus has perfectly earned God's favor, and now that is set upon us. And so we have reasons to give thanks. Rather than going over that list of reasons to grumble, rather than listening to your heart, you talk back to your heart. You tell it why you can be grateful to God. There are always going to be reasons for grumbling, but if you are in Christ, you always have more reasons for gratitude. When in doubt, list them out. It's helpful to start a list either in a, a phone, a journal, or even in your head of what are all the reasons I can thank God? What are his blessings? What are his promises? How have I seen him at work? And then when you start to drift towards the grievances and the grumbling, you go back to this list and you give thanks. You choose gratitude. And so Paul tells us, if you want to experience contentment, to experience the peace of God, we don't just sit back and wait for it. We don't put seeking God to the side until we get around to it. Instead, it says we go on the offense, that we pursue these things. We rejoice in the Lord. We keep praying. We keep giving thanks. And then we experience contentment. We fight for it. Well, I want to close with a reminder that the things I've been talking about, spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, they're not about proving ourselves to God or others. We shouldn't feel proud when we do them or guilty when we don't. Instead, they are simply the ways that we put ourselves in the path of God. That these practices are the means by which we pursue friendship of God, knowledge of God, and then worship to God. And so maybe one way you can enter 2021 is with a different mindset about spiritual disciplines. And so if you haven't read your Bible for a day or two, don't feel guilty, but just start the next. If you haven't prayed and that leads you to not pray because you feel unworthy and guilty, just start praying. Don't wait till you have the feelings. Don't push it to the side, but pursue God by his grace, not because of guilt. One way we can respond in 2021, one way we can respond today in the next 10 days is to think about how you could be intentional to grow your joy in the Lord. What would be something you could do in 2021 to know the Lord, to experience this kind of rejoicing in him? Is it reading a book about God or a book about the work of Christ? Is it getting into a Bible reading plan or a small group or a Bible study? Is it learning to pray rather than trying to control it and fix it yourself? Or is it the practice of giving thanks every day? Be thinking about one way you can be more intentional in 2021 to pursue joy and contentment in the Lord. And the goal is joy. The goal isn't these disciplines or these practices. The goal is joy in knowing Christ. Contentment will always be elusive until our hearts rest in and rejoice in the one who can be enough. Life is hard. 2021 will have more difficulties. Hopefully not as many as 2020, but the trials will continue. And we need God's power. We need God's help. And we need God's presence. We need more of God 
not less. And so we're told, rejoice in the Lord always. Pray to the Lord about everything and give thanks in all things. And he will be enough. Would you pray with me? God, it's easy to be caught up in all the things of the Christmas season, some of which can be gifts, and yet ignore all that we have in Jesus Christ. And yet, God, all the things that we long for and desire, belonging, having righteousness and forgiveness, knowing that we are and will eternally be loved by you, all these things we have in Jesus. So, God, there might not be joy in the world, but we can sing about a joy who has come to the world. So even now as we respond in worship, would you fill our hearts with who Jesus is? Would you cause us to be a people that rejoice in Jesus no matter what? We ask this in his name. Amen.